Hi there, welcome back to the podcast. Today I am going to be discussing something that's pretty topical at the moment in the lifting world, which is the idea of correct or safe technique. Does it exist? What is the evidence for that? And um, how does the way in which we lift weights, the way in which we choose to move our body relate to things like performance and importantly, injury risk? So any of you who are uh, following any of the wonderful lifting meme pages out there or maybe even follow the Squat University page will probably know where the inspiration for this podcast came from. Um, So Aaron Horshig, who runs that page, put out a post last week, I think, maybe longer ago. Um, And essentially it was, I think it was like a tweet kind of thing and uh, I have it here, I'll read it out for you. Lifter A squats 650 pounds in training with a hip shift and slight knee cave. Lifter B squats 500 pounds in training with great looking technique. And he ends it with, both are impressive, but lifter B is more impressive. Agree or disagree? Question mark. So that sparked a lot of controversy. Um in the the lifting world i think this guy has made arch nemesis uh with uh powerlifters of social media and meatheads in general and uh, i thought it would be an interesting topic for today's podcast to kind of delve into what actually is the evidence base for this statement whether um there is evidence for to back up this claim uh, is it something that you need to be concerned about if you have a, a hip shift and a slight knee cave when you're squatting or in any exercises if you're moving in a way that is maybe not traditionally taught? Um, so there's a few different things I want to go through here. But to really break this this post down, and I'm only using this post really because I think that it's a good example of an argument that's been happening in the lifting and training world for quite a long time now um, between two opposite ends of a a spectrum Uh, and I'm going to go into what that spectrum is later but um, I'm not picking on Squat University here I stopped following the page a while ago because I thought some of the claims being made were uh, a little bit egregious and um, you know at best taking uh some of the the evidence and interpret it, interpreting it in ways that um probably aren't completely accurate but i think the post is a good example of the basic argument that physiotherapists coaches athletes etc have so there's really two assumptions being made in the post that i think are interesting to break down The first assumption is really that there is such a thing as good or bad technique or that there is a model for each of the lifts, the squats in this scenario, that is going to be uh, safest and most effective. Because really what we're talking about is um, performance and injury risk. Those are the two things we really care about when it comes to fine-tuning technique so what is the the likelihood that there is such a thing as good or bad technique 
Well, I think there's two things you can look at. I think there's the biomechanical reasoning um, for something being the most efficient and then also perhaps safest way to lift a weight. Um, and then we can also look at examples of high performers in that exercise or, or sports or what have you. I'm going to keep most of the discussion centered around the squat just so that uh it's it's easy to understand what I'm, I'm talking about i'm not trying to apply it to loads of different lifts we'll just stick to the squat um for ease of discussion so in terms of biomechanical reasonings um i'm by no means an expert on this generally when we're talking about any kind of barbell lift it makes sense that the shortest distance between two points is a straight line and if you're lifting for strength, say if it's powerlifting or um, weightlifting or any sport where you're trying to get stronger, um, shortening the distance that a bar has to travel is going to allow you to lift more weight and lift it more efficiently. Um, now, that is not necessarily true in something like the bench press. Uh, there have been biomechanical studies done on high-level bench pressers, and they actually uh, move the bar in a curve. Um, in the squat and the deadlift, though, you do tend to see a straight up and down line um, in really high-level high performers in that. Um, there's a good Instagram page, actually, that is worth following if you're interested in that kind of nerdy aspect of technique i think it's called megan kinetic advantage uh i think she's a biomechanist and she puts up some cool posts um showing tracings of bar paths in lifters but um i think that this makes sense i also think it it makes a lot of sense to look at high level performers uh, as an indication of what is probably going to be the most efficient way to perform an exercise. So if we look at the squat, if you take a, a broad view of all of the people who are squatting massive weights, whether that's in powerlifting, weightlifting, whatever, there are some things that they're all doing differently, but there's some things that they're all doing the same. And it's the things that they're all doing the same that I think are where you can start to build a model of what's probably the most reasonable way to approach it. So all of them have their feet flat on the ground. They are holding the bar on their back somewhere between the top of their traps in a high bar position or lower down on their traps in a low bar position. They are um, keeping their back relatively arched or at least keeping the muscles of their back engaged um as they're doing the squat and their knees are generally in line with their toes uh sometimes in high bar squats particularly those done by olympic lifters you will see some knee cave they tend to do quite dynamic squats where they bounce out of the bottom because that replicates the the catch of a clean in the clean and jerk uh, so that's always been my understanding of, of why that tends to happen more with Olympic lifters. So those are the, the broad things that need to be done, it seems like, to uh, lift heavy loads in the squat. 
Outside of that though, there is quite a bit of variation. We see different grip widths on the bar. We see different uh, stance widths in the uh, where they put their feet. They um, might have their toes turned out more or less. And actually you do see hip shift. Um, I think it takes a trained eye of having looked at an awful lot of squats to be able to see minor hip shifts. I would say that you don't tend to see really um, exaggerated ones where the bar is tilting loads, although there have been some powerlifters in the past that have had that. There was a very good equipped powerlifter um, in the early 2000s called Alexander Kucher, I believe. And if you look up any videos of him on YouTube, he has a pretty significant lean going on in the bar um, as he's going down. And even really good squatters like, say, Clarence Kennedy, uh, he's got a hip shift. Most people do because most people are somewhat asymmetrical, um, as I'm going to go on to. So to round off this first assumption, there's a, a, such a thing as good and bad technique. Um, when it comes to performance, I would say, yeah, there are some things that all high-level performers seem to do which also seem to check out with the biomechanics most of the time. Um, the bench press there, for example, was uh, an exception to that rule, but that's kind of because of the, the mechanics of the lift. If you just press it in a straight line um, off your chest, you'd be putting a huge amount of stress onto your shoulders, and it wouldn't be efficient. So I think that is a bang-on assumption from uh, Aaron. Now whether the slight hip shift counts as bad technique in my book i'd say no the knee cave you'd probably have to see it um if it was a tiny knee cave um and the person has developed the strength to be able to hold that position i don't know if i would change it if it was a big knee cave and especially if they were hitting a plateau in their numbers that could be something that you would look at fixing um, okay, on to assumption number two from this post. Um, and I think this is where things start getting real uh, sticky. Asymmetry is dangerous slash bad for performance. That's the assumption there. Well, the thing about asymmetry is that, as I just stated, we're all asymmetrical to, the, to a point. Uh, many of us have one leg longer slash shorter than the other same with our arms um we have different degrees of range of motion and one hip versus another one shoulder versus another um even most people's faces are not perfectly symmetrical um and actually if you were to see a perfectly symmetrical face it's almost kind of unnerving because it doesn't look natural it doesn't look human um and so asymmetry is the norm. It's not a dysfunction. Um, pretty much all of us have some level of asymmetry. And so in terms of asymmetry being bad for performance, I can kind of see the rationale in that if, for example, one limb is doing a lot less work than the other, then 
yeah, you would assume that if I put the work into strengthening up that side and recalibrate my technique so that both arms are working closer to an even split, maybe my lifts would go up. I think that would make sense if there was an asymmetry that's, you know, significant enough that one side of the bar is like dipping down massively when you're doing a bench press, for example. But if we're talking about asymmetry where it's like, you know, there's a few degrees of rotation when you bench press or your hips shift slightly to the side when you're squatting. Um, I don't know if that's something that's worth fixing, especially for the average person who's not trying to like break any kind of uh, powerlifting or strength sport records. Um, and so asymmetry for performance, I think to a degree could have an argument for us again especially if you've hit like a plateau and it's quite a big asymmetry now when it comes to it like asymmetry causing pain um i don't know that uh there's there's definitely not enough research to back that claim up you know i i put a video up a while ago about um a very good physiotherapist called uh greg layman a video he was interviewed for and he made a good point in that like if you look at the Paralympics you just have asymmetries across the board Um, people who are amputees that are having to develop completely different and asymmetrical movement patterns to be able to run with a prosthetic leg or, or whatever and if asymmetry was that dangerous all of those people would be in too much pain all the time and getting injured all the time and wouldn't be able to compete um and there's been examples like i said of of very good uh lifters throughout the years lamar gant one of the best deadlifters of all time i think he was the first man to deadlift five times his body weight he had a scoliosis in his spine so he was constantly asymmetrically loading his spine pulled massive weights spine didn't explode um, if you look at Dmitry Klokov, um, one of the great Russian weightlifters, uh, he has a massive difference between where he puts his left foot and his right foot. One is angled out more than the other, and it's pretty significant. Uh, Naim Samangdolu, I don't know how to pronounce his name, uh, legitimately one of the best weightlifters of all time. I think some people would regard him as the best. Um, had a weird asymmetry with catching his clean. There's some footage, I think, on YouTube of him catching it clean and the bar is totally crooked. So I, I just don't think that it holds water to say that asymmetry is dangerous. And, you know, if it was that bad for performance, we wouldn't see uh, people competing in the Olympics people breaking records, people squatting ungodly amounts of weight with asymmetries. So the next thing I'm going to move on to is really what this discussion boils down to, particularly in the physiotherapy world, because if you've been to several different physiotherapists, you may have realized that there are many different approaches taken by people depending on their educational background and 
their own philosophies on things. Uh, there's kind of a, a, a mini war of sorts going on in physiotherapy at the moment uh, between two different models of um, treat, treatment of pain, uh, how people view pain. So the first model, which is the one that I would say that Aaron Horshig of Squat University subscribes to um, more would be called the kinesiopathological model. And so in this model, there is a huge amount of emphasis put on the idea of neutrality and symmetry in the human body. Um, and the assumption is that any deviation from neutral is going to cause pain because it's going to put asymmetrical loading on different tissues, whether they're muscles or ligaments, tendons, joints, whatever. Um, and that, uh, that's what needs to be treated. People are getting pain because they're loading stuff in a weird way and you need to get them back to neutral. Um, and then the other end of the spectrum is a different model entirely called the biopsychosocial model of pain. Um, and in this model, pain is viewed from more of a holistic, although I kind of hesitate to use that word because of all the negative associations it has, but I think it's kind of the most accurate to use. Um, so yeah, they, they view pain in a more holistic sense, where not only do you consider the, the biological aspects, so the body and its different tissues and organs and systems or whatever but you also have the the psychological aspect of a person and then the social aspect or the environmental aspect and all three of those can combine to um be variables in terms of whether somebody feels pain and how severe that pain is and whether they're able to get through it um and so those are two different ends of the spectrum and i think from my perspective both of those models are flawed in in certain ways um the the con of the major con of the kinesiopathological model is that uh you risk essentially not only being completely wrong about what's causing somebody's pain but i think one of the, the big issues um and I think it's an issue with pages like Squat University is that you create a, a major sense of fragility in people's minds around their body. Um, you know, the classic example of that is most people's feelings about their spine. Uh, there's been so much rhetoric over the years about uh, back pain, about lifting things being dangerous for your back, about sitting being dangerous for your back, flexing your spine being dangerous and people are just terrified to use their spine and one thing we know one thing that the research is really clear about is that something that's almost always great for avoiding pain or treating pain is movement and it really wouldn't surprise me if this rhetoric around uh, the spine and its supposed fragility has actually caused more problems than it's fixed because people are just stiffening up around their back. They're terrified of moving their back, especially if they've heard it before. So any notion of 
stretching it out by rounding over and extending and twisting and uh, strengthening it by lifting it and taxing it um, that terrifies a lot of people I've had many people come into the gym before um, and I'll have them do a back exercise like a, a back raise or a reverse hyper and they actually think that the sensation of their lower back muscles being used is like having done something to a disc in their back or strained something because they've never actually properly taxed taxed those muscles before so that is the major con of the kinesio pathological model the the flaws or or shortcomings of the biopsychosocial model um would be that you risk making somebody feel like their pain is kind of imaginary or that it's all in their head and you know they just need to take a more positive outlook on life and the pain's going to go away which is nonsense in some scenarios because you know if you've been on a football pitch and you get slide tackled and your acl ruptures there's no amount of uh, meditation and positive affirmations that are going to make that heal and there's a reason a physical biological reason for why that tear occurred um and rehab has to be done for that uh, one thing worth considering um is that you know having gone through this spectrum of different ways of treating pain you need to zoom out and realize that for the most part whether you agree or disagree more with one end of that spectrum um most physiotherapists if you let's say that you were lifter a right which would be great by the way if you have a 650 pound squat but let's say you're lifter a and you start getting knee pain um and you go to two different physiotherapists on either end of that spectrum when you zoom out and look at the way in which either one of those guys are going to treat you they're actually probably going to do stuff pretty similarly the kinesio pathological model guy might say oh your knee is hurting because you deviated from neutral and it was caving in and one side is stronger than the other and he's going to get you to probably do some split squats or you know hold a band around your waist and make you sit into one hip a bit more and the biopsychosocial model guy is going to say okay your knee hurts what's your stress levels like outside of training are you happy you know are you socializing with people um okay let's just not do the the squats for the time being and find some other exercise that doesn't hurt and then we'll come back to it and the the kinesiopathological model physio has said the same thing split squats for a while and then we'll go back to the squat if you summarize what those two guys did they kind of did the same thing they got you to stop or change the thing that you were doing that was causing you pain they got you to move in a different way probably tried to get you to keep training relatively hard in some way that you could tolerate without pain and then slowly reintroduce the movement that you want to do and built you back up until you're able to do it okay and these two guys will argue to death about who's right and who's wrong when really 
they were kind of doing the same thing and that just the the fact that people can take seemingly two totally different philosophies and arrive at the same result which is somebody rehabilitating an injury um tells you that this stuff probably isn't as complicated as we make it out to be um and that's why i would be against the statement made in that squat university post just because there's no problem to begin with the guy is strong as hell squatting 650 pounds his technique isn't deviating massively from the general accepted model for high performance in the squat and he doesn't have any pain um and this is something that happens in physiotherapy but it happens across the board in strength training and in nutrition you know uh if i take strength training for example coaches will argue back and forth about whether you should take an approach where you're doing you know the west side method or you know the the linear training method or block training or yada 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 you know on the whole any good coach is going to do the same key things they're going to figure out what your goal is create a plan to get there that's specific individualized somewhat to you and they're going to um you know make changes to the program on the fly based on how you respond to us and that can work with dozens of different uh, strategies so as with most things in this world the the truth lies somewhere in that gray area somewhere in the middle somewhere in the nuance um and i think as i've stated many times before on the podcast the world of fitness and strength training and nutrition and bloody blah all that stuff um it goes in cycles it lives in a pendulum time type of uh cycle and at the moment i think that pendulum is swung very far over towards that kinesio pathological model where um pages like squat university reside and i think that there needs to be um more positive outlooks on the adaptability and resiliency of the human body part of that is accepting that you are going to get hurt um just as a matter of being alive for i would hope a long period of time and staying active tissues get beat up there's going to be strains tears pulls along the way but the cost of not having that happen is far worse for your health because you'd just be sitting around doing nothing and i know people who have hurt themselves doing things that don't even uh, come anywhere close to being you know high intensity or hardcore looking activities like lifting weights you know people pull their backs doing gardening or you know twisting in an odd way as they reach for something behind them um getting up out of a chair they feel like a, a pull on their knee or something like that and to most of us that stuff is going to happen at some point so you may as well 
push the envelope a little bit at some point and try to do some cool stuff with your body before it gets older and um, all of that stuff becomes a lot harder. So a little bit of a rant there that has taken me slightly off topic. So those are your two different models of pain. And I think really it's about how adaptable you feel the body is. There is not, the research isn't there to say uh, whether asymmetry is really dangerous or increases your likelihood of injury. Um, Another, a really good point that I heard uh, recently in a physiotherapy podcast I was listening to is that you know, a lot of the stuff in that kinesiopathological side of stuff is, it's really cherry-picking evidence to suit that bias. So, you know, there's research that shows that people who flex their spine a lot have back pain. But there's also research showing that people that don't flex their back a lot and stay in neutral get back pain. So the question then is, which is it? Um... And if the answer is that flexing your spine causes back pain, there's not much we can do there because we're all flexing our spine all day to varying degrees. Uh, Neutral is actually not really something that you can achieve, even if you're doing something like a deadlift, where typically uh, we would cue or encourage people to keep it neutral or extend it back. Um actually when they do research on us like the best they can get people to is i think like maybe around like 40 degrees or so of spinal flexion or 40 40 percent rather of max spinal flexion uh with many people deadlifting with uh, what looks like a neutral back having it more around kind of 80 80 percent to 60 percent of their max flexion so if flexing your back is that dangerous, then we're kind of all screwed because uh, we're not very good at stopping it from flexing. Um, and if it's if it's not dangerous, that you have a, an equal chance of hurting yourself, whether it's neutral or flexed, then again, I just what's the point in worrying about it? So I'm gonna try to to bring things a little bit more full circle here and critique the post. So. The post is, you know, lifter A is supposedly more impressive, both from a performance and injury avoidance or longevity point of view than lifter B. Um, I disagree. I think that if lifter A is not experiencing any pain and it truly is just a slight hip shift and knee cave, then I don't see an issue there especially if they're still getting stronger. And we have to put things in context here. 650 pounds is a huge squat. Um, I'm not entirely sure what that is in kilos, but it's over 300 kilos anyway. Um, 500 pounds is also an extremely impressive squat, but I think the people risk holding themselves back from the goal of strength training, which is to add load to the bar in search of this fabled perfect technique. Um, So I wouldn't listen to Squat University there. So what to actually give you some value here, 
let's talk about what you probably should do going forward when it comes to uh, your lifting technique and what is probably going to be safest. So if you go back to the episode I did on injury, I think it's called Everything You Need to Know About Injury, one of the major things I harped on about was load management. So your training load is everything that you do in your training, the total weight times sets times reps, everything. And that has a much bigger predictor of whether or not you're going to get injured than almost anything else. Um, so I think you could almost get away with lifting just about any way you wanted so long as you were being very intelligent with increasing the load i do think that there are certain positions that make it more likely that you're going to injure certain tissues so for example with the bench press if you are doing the style where your elbows are flared out to the side that tends to put a lot of stress onto the rotator cuff muscles um which just aren't in a strong position to push heavy loads um and so i think it's going to be more efficient to have your elbows tucked and i think that's probably you know less likely for you to to tear something or injure one of those rotator cuff muscles but the big thing is managing the load in your training so making smart small increases over a long period of time not taking massive jumps and then the other aspect of that is technique. I think you need to look at the gross uh, model of a lift um, in terms of what all the people who seem to be really strong are doing. I've given the squat example, but if we took another lift like the deadlift, if you look at any world record in the deadlift, they all set up with a few things in common. They all have the bar over the middle of their foot. The bar is in contact with their legs and the uh, throughout the upward motion of the lift and the middle of the shoulder blade or the scapula is directly over the bar as well. And due to people having different builds, that puts hips into different positions, backs into certain positions, feet into different positions. But those three things are usually always checked off. And actually, massive credit to Starting Strength for being one of the first uh, books or sources of content, or Mark Ripito really, um, for putting that model into words and, and visuals that people could see. Um, so that's an example of, you know, taking... The basics of technique but then from there make the technique your own so find what works for you find what feels strongest for you while sticking within those parameters and uh and go from there so don't be worrying about small hip shifts don't be worrying about tiny asymmetries um the research anecdotal evidence evidence of people in sports um does not really support the idea that 
you're going to get hearth. Um, and if we take something from that biopsychosocial model of pain, the belief that you're going to get hearth by uh, having any of those asymmetries or, you know, technical quirks, uh, that belief is probably more likely to get you hurt than actually doing that stuff. A good example of that is that, um, yeah, well, one thing that I would actually like a lot of you to consider is that uh, if you have ever gotten any pain from sitting down, ask yourself what age you were when that started happening. And does that by any chance coincide with you being told that sitting down is bad for you or that you could expect to be in pain from sitting down? I'm not saying that that is going to be the case for everybody, but I know for myself, I wasn't really aware of any um, beliefs that sitting might be an issue until I was kind of in my mid to late teens. And unsurprisingly, to me, it was around that time that I started to feel aches and pains from sitting for too long. Now, in general, uh, I think it makes sense that staying in any posture for too long is going to cause issues. So it's a good idea to get up and move around. But the belief that you have around your movement, your resiliency of your body, that's going to have a huge impact on whether you feel pain or not. Um, and then the last thing I would say is just try to be consistent with whatever way you're lifting. Uh, a huge mistake I made when I first started coaching people was trying to um, make radical changes to their technique. Um, probably when it wasn't needed and far too quickly. If you decide you're going to make a change to your technique, whatever you do, do not try to use the same weight that you usually would. The thing that makes the most sense to me for how people get hurt is not only making drastic increases in load, but um, loading movements and tissues that you haven't prepared for that. So to give an example, I hurt my groin or one of the muscles around there one time in the gym a couple of years ago uh funnily enough i had just squatted 160 170 kilos in my training and then after the session i was putting some plates away and i was being lazy and there was a, a plate lying on the ground and it was rubber flooring so it was high friction between the plate and the floor and lazily, I just went to go push the place away uh, with the inside of my foot. And I felt a pull on the inside of my leg. And it wasn't a heavy place. It was only like a 10 kilo bumper place. But because of the resistance caused by the floor, um, like the, the friction and the fact that I'd never do any kind of groin exercises, wasn't prepared for it. And I had a slight pull. And it was fine after uh, a week or so. But... Um, that's an example of how injuries happen. When you change stuff um, and you're not conditioned for the load that you're you're putting on yourself when you're doing that movement or when you're training that, that muscle or whatever. But um, anyway, this has been quite a ramble. I don't know how long I've gone for, but it's quite a while. And I doubt many people are still listening at this stage. So to to round it off, um, 
is there such a good thing as good and bad technique? Yes, to a degree. You have basic things that you probably are going to want to do to maximize your performance on a given lift or exercise. And then you will need to individualize certain things based on your own body structure. Um, is asymmetry dangerous slash bad for performance? Um, I think as long as it is not a crazily large asymmetry, then it's unlikely and probably not something worth worrying about. And the worry itself may actually be more of an issue than any asymmetry. Um, and then going forward, if you want to lift as efficiently and safely as possible, you're probably going to want to put most of your focus into making intelligent and slow increases in load, keeping your technique as consistent as possible, and uh, maybe trying to keep a positive outlook on movement and not getting down on yourself if you feel the odd bit of pain or if you do encounter uh, hopefully just a small injury here and there. Okay, I hope you have found that interesting. Sorry for any rambling and going off course here and there, but uh, this was a tough podcast to stay structured on for some reason. And uh, next week, I will be chatting with someone who is far more knowledgeable than me on nutrition. So make sure to tune into that if you want to... Um, hear us chat about some topics and some myths around nutrition if you enjoyed the podcast please feel free to share that with anybody that you think would enjoy it um, if you want to um, suggest any future topics you can message me on instagram ask kill o'connor or you can send me an email kill ask killianoconnor.net okay hope you enjoyed that and next time